But I think as a whole, the community of people that work in finance, it's a very political game. Uh, you need to work really hard. Like the day to day looks like, you know, you wake up at nine on a good day, you're out at seven. And of course, if you if you get do get out early, you basically just go beeline to the nearest bar and just drink a bunch. Uh, but more often, you basically have no control of your schedule and you're basically there till 3 a.m. doing whatever the client asks uh, and kind of doing whatever you can to make the firm money. But as you kind of just like look back and you just point to the fact that the system clearly is not sustainable, uh, you know, especially when we talk about what it's like to live in a government or live under a government that passes laws that are many thousands of pages. No one has time to read them. No one's even know who's written them. Like this is this is these are not indications of a well-functioning system or the system even functioning as it was intended to. I think though I tend to have a little more success, just kind of a sly roundabout way of kind of showing that this doesn't make a ton of sense, and then showing Bitcoin as an alternative. These days, I, I don't, you know, I show pretty lightly. You know, I think when I first got into Bitcoin, I was telling everyone, "Oh, you need to get in Bitcoin. You know, you need all your money in Bitcoin." Blah blah blah. Uh, and I don't really like thinking about. I think my the the Drew Armstrong ex-girlfriend uh, Bitcoin index is the worst performing fund of all time. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. decentralized radio today we got drew on the line drew how's it going man good good to see you again tristan uh been a while uh how's life it's good yeah it's it's fantastic to be honest been outdoors maxing the last time we saw each other was in wyoming which is funny enough so that was a, a fun time at the jackson hole ski summit um excited for winter weird weirdly enough but <laughs> I guess that's how it goes. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm just soaking in the last bits of Ray before the snow comes on and I got to be okay with cold again. I'm like yeah. the opposite. I don't, it's not that I don't like cold, but I've, I've like an aversion to it to where like my body still, the nervous system's not as regulated as it could be. So we're going to work on it this winter really ruthlessly, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's much you can do to replace, uh, a lack of just natural sunlight, unfortunately, but it, it's the uh, it's, it's the cost of living up in the northern hemisphere and up in the U.S. I guess, or at least in our part, our latitudes in the U.S. So true. Yeah, that's why you just got to max it out in the summer and then embrace the the cold in the winter. And uh, yeah, it comes with a lot of trade offs. But I like the change. I like the seasonality. It's kind of these cycles that we go through, which is similar to the cycles we go through in, in Bitcoin and in everything in life. To be honest, it would be kind of boring if it was just like 75 and sunny every day. Bitcoin was the same price every day. You know, you need, you need, you need something to get shaken up in the world a little bit, I, I think, personally. But um, No, I maybe, totally agree. I, yeah. uh, of course, my, my, I was even more uh, of a risk advocate, a risk-on advocate before <laughs> running a Bitcoin mining company. Um, you know, I think maybe maybe now it's made me a little more conservative with respect to risk. But yeah, given the choice between feeling the full range of human emotion, uh, all the ups and downs that come with it, versus just uh, a stagnant flat line of it being all right, I think uh, I choose the full range of human emotion any day. 
Yeah. And I think it's funny because sometimes when you get like to the adult world, like, you know, when you're in high school, college, if you played sports, you're just in school, like there's a lot of like up and downs on a daily basis, you know, whether it's just from tests and grades or sports and results, but then you get in the real world and it becomes kind of like a steady, just like trot of, of life. Uh, very easily. And, I, and I've noticed that and, and just like going hunting this month and just like failing a couple of times. I'm like, wow, that sucked. But like, I haven't failed at something in, in, in quite some time. Like, I think it's good for that. Cause obviously that's how you learn. And so many people just, yeah, they just take the, the safe bet. But for you getting into, yeah, running, running a mining company, just diving headfirst into that, I'm sure is, is a prime example of, of learning on the job and, and really um, building a name for yourself, which is cool. So, so how does one, how did Drew get into this? And when did this all come to fruition? I guess Bitcoin and then specifically mining that this is where you wanted to go in life? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> You know, I guess I didn't have a, a really strong answer to that when I was around 22 years old. So like many who have come before me, I found myself working in Wall Street and investment banking. Um, and I think I knew the first day, uh, you know, it's different when you're an, an intern there uh, and you're like, oh, this is cool. I, I make decent money. I get to live in New York. Uh, this whole city is kind of a, a playground, which, of course, you know, comes with its own uh, trade offs and over a long enough time horizon. But after the first week of that really being my life, I, I realized immediately that I needed to get the fuck out and, and do something that actually contributed some value to the world. Um, and so basically within fir the first couple of months of me working uh, in banking, uh, I was looking around at other things that could be interesting. So it seemed technology was an obvious way to have like a high impact on the world. Um, and this is 2017, so numbers going up. And naturally, that led me to reading more and more about Bitcoin. There are some other things I was reading about at the time. It was, uh, that was right after uh, some really interesting pieces on uh, Elon Musk and on, uh, on artificial intelligence and Neuralink were coming out. So that was quite interesting as well. And that seems to be in vogue now. Um, but really, I ended up going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole in 2017 uh, alongside CEO of Cathedra, uh, my childhood best friend, AJ Scalia. And so we basically were both working at different banking jobs about 15-minute walk away. Of course, we never saw each other because we rarely set foot outside the office when it was daylight hours. But uh, we just kept going further and further down the rabbit hole. And, you know, I wasn't even necessarily a um, I, I wasn't even awake to the, the call it uh, moral hazard that banks and the banking system uh, kind of exhibits and, and all the damage that the fiat monetary system does. But reading more and more about Bitcoin, it just seemed more and more obvious as, as a technology. And of course, I had some uh, libertarian predispositions as well, but really went down the rabbit hole there. And then, uh, as I basically was looking for the nearest exit in banking for a little over a year, um, AJ Scalia, my business partner, he ended up getting a job at a company called galaxy digital. Um, I ended up leaving my banking job to go spend some time in a Buddhist monastery, but that that's kind of another story. But, uh, AJ basically plugged me into galaxy. So I get out of the Buddhist monastery and then start at galaxy about, uh, you know, two weeks later. So um, while we were at Galaxy, we worked on a variety of things. We did some venture investing. We worked on There's an investment banking team there. So we worked on that too. But we were two Bitcoin maxis kind of working in a shitcoin casino. And, you know, grateful for all I learned at Galaxy, worked with some great people. But it is, uh, uh, you know, they do trade a lot of shitcoins. And uh, they made a lot of money going long shitcoins at various points in time. So we were thinking, what are some of the ways we can actually work on Bitcoin and actually touch Bitcoin here? 
And now we saw many businesses get started and fail while we were at Galaxy, especially on the venture team. And really the two businesses that have always made money, uh, whether or not they're great businesses, but have always made money, are exchanges and Bitcoin miners. So we started getting more and more involved in Bitcoin mining. We looked at a couple of Bitcoin mining investments. We tried to help uh, the company that unfortunately no one really is familiar with the backstory outside of the industry, but the company responsible for that whole ERCOT demand response strategy uh, was a company called Hoddle Ranch. We worked with them for about a year trying to raise $300 million to go build a one gigawatt uh, Bitcoin mining data center out in West Texas. Um, and then we helped start the Bitcoin mining team at Galaxy. So uh, we... Uh, worked with Amanda Fabiano, who joined from Fidelity. We built out a prop mining operation, an ASIC-backed uh, lending product, and a variety of other things. Uh, and then summer of 2021, AJ and I finally wanted to, to go leave and start our own companies we've always dreamed of doing. And about a week after I left, Marty Bent uh, hits up AJ asking if he'd be interested in running a publicly traded Bitcoin mining company. We get beers at BitBlock Boom that next week. Uh, and I think about uh, eight cores lights a piece later, uh, we basically hatched a plan. Uh, and uh, a month after that, AJ and I joined us full time. So a lot's happened in the two years since then. But that's basically the genesis and the story that has led to uh, call it Cathedra being what it is today, because um, that's the name AJ and I brought prior to us joining. It was called Fortress Technologies. That's okay. really interesting. It's really interesting talking about people that sort of forge in their own paths and stuff like that. And they, it's funny you mentioned starting an investment banking because I have a client who uh, I can't remember what Ivy League school she's currently at, getting her master's in some business, some business sort of function. But a lot of the people there have backgrounds in working for uh, investment firms or like hedge funds and stuff like that. And one thing I kind of wanted to ask you, which is a little bit of a side note, but I just had, I was just curious because I've been pulled into this world. It's sort of like. How, what, what's the lifestyle um, of that world like? Like, I'm sure, like, obviously there are certain things that drew you away from it. Was it just like the, the mundaneness or was it not necessarily that? Um, but what, what was the lifestyle of that, like there in that sort of centralized community versus like where you have come to now? Um, how are the communities different? What have you noticed in the, in the, in the differences? I, I'm just curious because I've been talking to people in both sides of the coin. Totally. And so I think in, in traditional finance, you largely have folks that went to similar like prestigious colleges or whatever, um, who, who moved to New York and uh, they basically just want to be vaguely, they want to be successful. They don't really know what that means, but they want to have money and they don't want to have to worry about uh, call it like financial success. And so I think a lot of them just see finance as like a, a risk adjusted way to make a lot of money. So like you can go work in banking and the guy who ran my previous uh, desk in banking, that was the only job he ever had. He started as an analyst, worked his way up to being head of the group. And, you know, of, of course, there were uh, – I know it wasn't easy on his personal life. I think maybe a couple marriages were involved. Uh, but he, he basically um, just stayed doing this job, and he became super specialized at this one very narrow thing that only a few people in the world know about. Uh, and, I, you know, I think it, as a whole, the community of people that work in finance, uh, it, it – it's a very political game. Uh, you need to work really hard. Like the day to day looks like, you know, you wake up at nine on a good day, you're out at seven. Uh, and of course, if you, if you get, do get out early, you basically just go beeline to the nearest bar, uh, and just drink a bunch. Uh, but more often you basically have no control of your schedule and you're basically there till 3am doing whatever the client asks, uh, and kind of doing whatever you can to make the firm money. And so there, there is a strong community around that. 
basically uh, a, a lot of it's facilitated through trauma bonding. A lot of it's facilitated through people working the same small industry uh, that's very much gate kept. And so you, um, you know, the people who you're interacting with are similar to you in many ways. And, you know, I think a lot of it too is because it's such a brutal job when you're not working, you're not like, oh, I'm using this as time to get healthy. You're basically just going out or you're going on like lavish vacations. The lifestyle style creep is real. And, you know, I think what really bothered me about it wasn't so much like the grueling hours. Like, that's fine. I'm happy to grind for something I think is important. But it was mostly just like, what, you know, to what end, right? So, so I'm basically grinding just so I can maybe get a bonus, a, a nice bonus. Uh, and of course, banks, I, I don't know of anyone who's ever really been pleased with the bonus because everyone thinks they should get paid more than they do. That's life. Um, and you're, you're basically just like constantly grinding, constantly hoping to like level up to this next level of uh, material wealth, uh, oftentimes in like uh, New York or London. Um, but, you know, flat, fast forward 20 years, uh, you probably don't see much of your wife. Uh, you probably don't see much of your kids. Because you live in New York City, you're probably spending a ton of money for your kids to go to a boarding school. That's really expensive. Um, and then you're also maybe spending money on a nanny. You're spending money on all these things. So you, you're making all this money. You're not even rich. You know, you're probably maybe, maybe still even in debt. Uh, and so it's just sort of a sucker's game. Um, but as I was thinking about it at the time, you know, I think there are really uh, three types of motivations that people have in terms of their career, at least in my opinion, right? You have the people who are really uh, people oriented, you know, they'll do anything basically as long as they like the people. And I think a lot of people in finance end up staying because of that. You know, everyone on their team is also, you know, a nice fratty guy, maybe a D1 athlete or something like that who who can pound some some drinks on the weekends. Uh, number two, I think a lot of people are um, called like activity oriented. They, they love doing one specific thing, one sort of craft. And they, they really like honing that craft and becoming really, really good at it. And they're happy to do many things or work with many people if it means they can get better at that craft, right? And I, and I do respect that craftsman mindset. But the third bucket, in my opinion, is what I fall in, which is um, people who are mostly motivated by impact. And like all fucking, you know, uh, clean toilets. If, if you're telling me me cleaning toilets is going to uh, have this massive, hugely positive impact on the world and, and it's going to make a real difference, I'm, I don't give a shit. I'll do it. So... Uh, being in that ladder camp, you know, I find myself being far more values aligned with, say, the folks in Bitcoin who, you know, mo most of the Bitcoin people, and th there's a huge diversity, right? Like, there are all kinds of folks in Bitcoin, but there is a shared set of values. And I think that was one of the things that I noticed the first time I went to a BitDevs. Like, all these people are so different. Uh, and I remember my first BitDevs, like, it's very different than, you know, uh, after after work drinks with a bunch of finance bros where everyone's just like super sociable, maybe extroverted to a fault. And they, they have like no real interesting thoughts or insights into the world, but they're like fun enough to hang out with um, versus like Bitcoin where on a the surface, there may be huge differences. We're like, I would never really be friends with this person in real life. But then you become really close with them over the long term because it's Bitcoin's one of these few places where you can see someone every six to 12 months. And they can still feel like a really meaningful part of your life and still be a really beautiful relationship. And I think those long form relationships are often lost today. So, I mean, yeah, Bitcoin, I think one of the big differences, there's just like a shared common set of values. And I guess there are in finance too, but like the, the implicit set of values are hedonism and uh, material wealth versus Bitcoin, which is like being part of a project bigger than yourself, knowing that none of us will ever contribute what Satoshi contributed, but we can all help chip away at this, this problem of, uh, creating a fair monetary standard in the world in our own way. And I think that is just hugely more meaningful. Uh, and I'm sure it's something that, you know, both of you guys have felt. And it's not even necessarily just Bitcoin, right? But even things like health, you know, a lot of the folks I've met, you know, whether Tristan, it's you or 
uh, like the Meat Mafia guys are another great example of this, right? Where it's Bitcoin adjacent, but there is like a shared set of values that they care about. Uh, and, and this like positive outlook of like, what can I do to be positive in the world and make a difference? And I mean, the, the, from a meaning standpoint, it's night and day, kind of how you feel at the end of the day when you're working on something like that. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful and it, it's so true. Like it's but it it's it's important to consider maybe why there's so many people just stuck in that other mindset and and I think it's just a, a trap, it's a facade that, and and they don't really know, they don't really take that plunge or they just they haven't considered this perspective for whatever reason. But because for me, it's like once you go down this path, once you look the world through this lens of kind of being part of something greater than yourself, like there's no going back. And and then you you know you question everything. You want to you know decentralize your whole life, but you want to be a part of moving this forward and bringing as many people along with you. Um, but at the same time, you consider the fact that ninety percent of people are probably a lost cause because they're just so stuck in that mundane day-to-day life, whether it's, you know, a trad finance bro or just anyone in the, you know, centralized corporate slog because, yeah, that's all they do. That's all they know. If you spend all your time kind of waking up, going to this job, working your whole day, you're not even getting outside really. And then, yeah, I mean, that's how I felt in college as you know, student athlete and then electrical engineering student was like all my time was spent literally just doing engineering work and then soccer. And the moment I had a free time was just blow off steam. All right, let's like go out and drink and like play FIFA or just like fuck around. Like there wasn't, you didn't even have any brain power left to really like consider other things in life. And I, and I feel like that's just the trap for, for so many individuals. And yeah, I've seen, you know, so many, you know, people close to me go through that. And then it also kind of inspired me to step outside of that world. But it's Which actually well, the one thing I will say to yeah. relate to this is video games are a shit coin. I agree. But if one video <laughs> game, if we can, if we can say one video game is all right, if all of my kids play one video game, it's FIFA. <laughs> There we go. There we go. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. I would say I would be like I, I, I tell everyone this that when the next Elder Scrolls comes out, you won't see me for six months probably. But that's like a good like who knows? I'll be like in my thirties by then, by the time they finish that fucker. But um the only reason I even brought up that question was because I've been personally fascinated in it because these discussions I've had with some of my friends that are in that world, they it seems like they go out a lot to sort of burn off that steamer that frustration or whatever that they don't get from the day to day um in the night and they go on like they're out late and like doing all this stuff and i i wonder like in the back of my mind like how do they maintain the energy to do their jobs well when they're like burning the candle at all the ends you could possibly burn it out and i've just found that in this in the bitcoin community there's just so much more thoughtfulness around purpose and 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 stuff like that which I don't want to discount everybody. It, That's just I think like it's the, just the a natural energy. It's like when you're passionate about something, you just have this, you know, this, yeah, ener- this good stress. Like you're just stress is often convoluted as bad, but like it can be a tool or it can be, you know, totally fair, something yeah. that you hurt yourself with. And I think that's it, right? If you're working something, you're passionate on something you're passionate about, that's going to be some good stress fueling your energy. But my question for Drew is like, how do we bring more people and how have you, you know, 
fared, uh, especially in like an area like New York City. I mean, you're a social guy. Like, how do we bring more people onto our frame of mind, whether it be into the Bitcoin realm, into considering the importance of health, just in general? How has that gone for you? And, and what do you think works? Because I would say if you talk to most Bitcoiners and you're honest, their success rate at, at like orange pilling people is terrible. I mean, it's got to be like less than 5% success rate because you almost have to find this on your own to really just get it. That's the... I guess, personal uh, responsibility, sovereignty way. But I'm curious how you think about it uh, being in New York City and just being well-connected across the board. Yeah, and I think even 5% is, uh, if someone can hit 5% hit rate, like, my God, that's impressive. I think if, you, if you're even north of 1%, that's, uh, but, it, but the benefit is it's, it's an infinite game, right? So it's over what time horizon. You know, I think in general, taking a step back, I think one of the reasons why there is this, uh, and it's something I, I talked about with, uh, with John Vallis a couple times, but why there is such a like big, um, call it like void of meaning is because all the traditional pillars of meaning have, in human life have been stripped away, right? We, we, if you think about what it was like to live in a village several hundreds of years ago, you know, when you're, uh, there's intergenerational mixing, uh, you have a strong sense of identity, a strong sense of belonging with like a tribe, however that might be defined. Um, you know, you, you, uh, know where you fit in the universe. You have a cosmological perspective where you feel really well situated within the universe, and then you know what it means to, to like to succeed. Is basically for you to like you know uh, do fulfill your purpose, live a moral life, give your kids some sort of value. And I know this maybe is a little too reductionist, and I don't want to go all like Rousseauian and start uh, kind of like uh, worshiping and idealizing uh, what must have been very hard lives, nonetheless. But, you know, I think a lot of those pillars of meaning are like stripped away. We, we're no longer connected to the land, to the food we eat, uh, to, to really people in the same way, especially in a place like New York City where you're just con you're saturated with strangers and stimuli 24-7. Now, I think, one, I'm very fortunate that my, my, my normie friends are actually like tremendous human beings, even if they're not full-blown Bitcoiners yet. Uh, after, after years of trying, they'll hold Bitcoin, but I think they're tired of me talking about it. I think they're, they're, they're tremendous human, human beings who still care about finding value and creating value in their life in other ways. And so that, that is probably the thing I care about most is just people having something that, to your point, Christian, they're, they're passionate about. They're, they're willing to, to like work towards. Um, and, you know, I think, I think with Bitcoin, it's, it's nice because all, everyone who, who sees, uh, who I know, who kind of sees that uh, you, I, there are such strong relationships with Bitcoiners, I think they know that there's something there because that, that is very atypical. Like it's atypical that I'll like go to, uh, you know, one of my, Thomas Pocky, the guy who started PubKey, I went to his daughter's like second birthday party and my friends are like, why are you going to a two-year-old's birthday party? Like what? Like you're, I'm just like showing up solo, no kids, uh, just to like hang out, uh, hang out with Thomas. But, you know, so like, I think people see that there's something there. And I think with most, with like, if there's anything I try to kind of show with Bitcoin is it's sort of. There's not necessarily saying why Bitcoin's so important because I think that that can be like a little insufferable. But I think people will see that there are problems uh, with uh, the current system. Like there are some things that don't make sense, right? The regional banking system made this very easy. Um, the, you know, the U.S. government freezing Russia's FX reserves was maybe a little bit harder to sell, but some people got it. Um, but as you kind of just like look back and you just point to the fact that the system clearly is not sustainable. Uh, you know, especially when we talk about what it's like to live in a government or live under a government that passes laws that are many thousands of pages introduced to uh, the, the voters, or the, you know, Congress um, a couple hours before they're voted on. 
No one has time to read them. No one's even know who's written them. Like this is, this is, these are not indications of a well-functioning system or the system even functioning as it was intended to. And so I think though I tend to have a little more success, just kind of a sly roundabout way of kind of showing that this doesn't make a ton of sense and then showing Bitcoin as an alternative or even just, I mean, the, the scarcity meme is, is also very effective, but these days I, I don't, you know, I show pretty lightly. You know, I think when I first got into Bitcoin, I was telling everyone, oh, you need to get in Bitcoin. You know, you need all your money in Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I don't really like thinking about, I think my, the, the Drew Armstrong ex-girlfriend uh, Bitcoin index is the worst performing fund of all time. I, I think the, the, I, there are a couple different 60K buys there and I don't, you know, I don't like to think about that too much. So I think eventually there's old saying in Buddhism, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And, and I think that's very true, but we just need to keep in mind that most people who work in these corporate jobs, they just want to grill. They don't really want to like think too hard. They're basically in there, they're doing their job. They show up, they get to have fun when they have fun. And they may be comfortable with that trade-off of not really needing to exert themselves or like take a bunch of risk. And like, that's fine, different strokes for different folks. Um, but in an ideal world, people don't need to think about money all the fucking time. People don't need to day trade equities out of their Robinhood account just to protect their retirement fund. So I think the, the sell for Bitcoin for me is a little bit obvious there, but you know, everyone comes to it when they're ready. Yeah, I mean, that totally encapsulates my experience just seeing it through my dad, right? He's like a full-time engineer, you know, doesn't works his ass off for the government, doesn't have time to, you know, play part-time investor, part-time just expert and all these things. But when the systems are broken, whether it's the health system, the monetary system, you have to just be you have to become like a jack of all trades and People don't have time for that. They don't, like you said, they just want to grind, put their head down, do what they do, and that's their contribution. So yeah, it's it's tough, and it's 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 a tough sell. So I've definitely uh, kind of taken my foot off the pilling uh, accelerator, and I'm just like, all right, eventually you're just gonna get it. Like it's gonna get bad enough to you're gonna get it, but it's so hard with people that are very close to you because you just, yeah, you know, it, it obviously directly affects your life, but. Those are the um, hardest to sell, right? Like my, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was telling my dad about Bitcoin for like four years before even thinking oh, yeah. about it. They thought about buying it. 2018, like, 3K, I was hammering. Now, nothing. <laughs> totally. But we're planting seeds. We're planting seeds, right? We're just like – and also, you know, seeing multiple cycles now, you're like, look, mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look really smart one or two years out of every four years. And then the rest of the time, everyone's just going to be like, you're a fucking idiot. And like <laughs> – I'm 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 not gonna I'm not gonna be responsible for the price you buy in, but what I will do is plant seeds showing you that this is here to stay, that this is important, and that one day I hope you understand. Yeah. Definitely. It's it's so fascinating. Yeah. I like I I finally got to the point where like my folks were like they'll listen to podcasts about it. Like I've sent them a couple of ours or they'll send a listen to a couple of ones that I've said, but I, I still don't think my my dad's anywhere near buying like any Bitcoin or anything really, but it's like one of those things. It even took me like a long time to get into it or even like consider buying it. And even at that point, I was still viewing it as like some form of investment in USD anyways. And even then I was like, oh no, like volatility, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know shit. Like, and I still like in, in the grand scheme, I don't know Jack anyways, but I know way more, insurmountably more than I did like four or five years ago. And like knowledge is power. And like you said, it's sort of like with everything that, you're sort of maybe out of the norm of in society. You sort of just sort of got to lead by example. And then hopefully people will jump on when they see results. And then you just got to be okay with, like you said, probably majority of people will never get there. Um, and that's okay. It's about tapping the few percent that you can and sort of just like bringing them along with you and hoping 
you can get as many as you can. But it's just one of those things that I find interesting from a psychological point of view. It's like with uh, things like the debt ceiling and stuff like that, $33 trillion in debt. You look at that and everyone could agree like, oh, that's probably not good. Like it's getting really sharp, this curve right here. And uh, we're just like listening to the government write blank checks every goddamn day. And uh, it's like, no, <laughs> it is really, we just live in a really weird society. One thing I did want to ask you though, just because you mentioned earlier, and it made me think of my uncle because my uncle too stayed in a Buddhist monastery for quite a long time back in the, the good old days, uh, when he, the old, good old hippie days for him. But I wanted to know how did that time, like one, why? And two, how did that like shape who you are now? What principles did you take away from that time doing those things and sort of the antithesis of that? And how has that played into like your current life? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a like good a question. Journey. Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't thought about this or like answered this question in a while because it does, it feels like a lifetime ago. But I mean, so when I was in investment banking, like I was meditating in college, my, my buddy in my fraternity was like, I, I me and my girlfriend just broken up. My buddy, in my fraternity was like, you've been blacking out every night for the last week. Uh, you should maybe meditate or like try something to just like, you know, cut the shit here. Um, and so then I started meditating. I started reading more about it, really got into it. And you know, I even took my first uh, two of my three vacations I took during investment banking were on silent meditation retreats. Uh, I didn't tell them that I was going to be on a sound meditation retreat the first time. I just turned off my phone and hope nothing bad happens. But, um, you know, I think over time, it just kind of like saturated my mind. Uh, and it just had such a massive impact on like me feeling better. And every day, so much of the call, like the Buddhist doctrine just seemed to me to be true. Now I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't fully co-sign onto it now. Like I used to, um, but going and living in a Buddhist, uh, monastery, I thought that you know my practice was progressing at X rate, and the meditation retreats had really accelerated that. Like the feeling coming out of a ten-day silent meditation retreat, the first time you even listen to a song, or the first like your your experience of the world is just so much more uh, subtle. Your awareness is so much more clear, um, and everything is enjoyable because you're just so attentive and you're just like patiently receiving what's happening around you. Um, when I went to a Buddhist monastery, it was a little bit of a different experience. Uh, and like, I, I still, I'm very grateful for it. Waking up every day at 4am, you know, meditating, uh, one of the monasteries, you're supposed to meditate for 16 hours a day, you sleep for five. Uh, and they said, if you're a really dedicated meditator, uh, you, you won't sleep, you'll just be meditating. And that's all the rest you need. Um, but I, I certainly never hit that point myself. You know, I think when I was doing meditation retreats in the US, I thought that, um, I had a really good experience, but I couldn't shake the feeling that it was white guys playing dress up. And so when I went to go live in Buddhist monasteries, I went to Nepal, didn't really connect with the monastery there. I ended up going to Myanmar uh, and, you know, found a couple of really great monasteries where I spent a few months and the experience was great. Although I went from, you know, kind of being a hipster about meditation, not liking the white guys playing dress up to being a white guy playing dress up in a foreign land where I'm basically always the foreigner. There's a language barrier. But it was really good to see. And it was good because, you know, I've been fantasizing about this sort of uh, what it would be like to go into a meditation retreat uh, or go, go live in a monastery for real and how I would, you know, basically go turbo on improving my practice. But really, it was just sort of being confronted by, the, you know, how mundane my own mind was at the time. Uh, when am I going to eat again? Uh, I'm tired. I want to go sleep. Like, I need to go take a piss. Uh, and so these were, these were uh, most of the thoughts that I had. But I definitely... I noticed some things about how at least my mind worked that have definitely shaped the way I approach the world today. And one of them is the deep underlying view that 
if I don't like the contents of my mind, I'm sort of responsible for that. Now, I may not be responsible for every thought that I have, but um, I, I can habituate and I, I can let go of the thoughts that are, you know, certainly the unproductive thoughts, but really, all, you know, all thoughts. Um, and that still is called like my underlying assumption, my default view of the world and the view of the human mind. Uh, and I still think that many aspects of Buddhism are true and that Buddhism is seen into the way the human mind works in a really profound way, maybe more profound than what I've seen in some other uh, other faiths. But of course, now, you know, I'm back in like the real world now. And one of the one of the reasons I like decided I, part of the idea was I wanted to see what it'd be like to be a monk for real. Right. Like what if what is it like if I do this for the rest of my life? And I definitely realized while I was there that I'm actually still way too attached uh, to the world. And I don't necessarily view that as a bad thing. You know, my um, my well, one of the teachers that I had over there, she was an American woman and I, I was talking with her and she said how she saw her sister once in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and, you know, to think about really dedicating yourself to the practice like that, we just don't see anyone in your family. You, you cut off all these connections with the outside world. That, that definitely was not something I was ready to do. And I think deep down, I, I sort of uh, maybe had too much ego to ever really let go of the attachments to the world. And I definitely, uh, you know, I, I want to actively engage in the world. But of course, the trade off with that is, especially after running the business for the last two years, you know, I, um, a long ago, I kind of made the decision that if there was anything I could do, anything I could change about myself to, to operate better so that I can help bring out the best outcome for this company, uh, you know, I, I would totally do it, right? Like, whether it's completely changing the way I interact with people who I work with just to make sure that I get, you know, they perform at their best. Like I'm happy to do that. And obviously running a, a company is a total emotional roller coaster. I'm sure you guys feel that same emotional roller coaster with, you know, it's really with any uh, entrepreneurial effort where you're trying to build something that doesn't really exist. Like you need to put so much of yourself into it that uh, I'm, I'm like incredibly attached. And the emotional roller coasters you feel where like, you know, one conversation goes really well, you're on top of the world. And then a conversation, it doesn't even need to be like shit, but you're just like, oh, fuck. Like this is actually really, really tough. Um, but anyway, so that, that's a, a long, a long way to answer. And you know, I've come back around to now just like believing in God again, the old uh, Christian to atheist to Buddhist to just like normal Christian again. But, you know, such is life. That's cool, man. I mean, I think you highlight a lot of good things that can be taken away from such an experience or, or just silent meditation retreats in general. That's something I, I thought I wanted to do a lot because when I was uh, early in my brain injury uh, recovery journey, I like really got into meditation too. But then it was almost like it tapered off as it got better. So it's like I got what I needed from it. And sometimes you have to acknowledge that that's just part of the experiences. You kind of go down this rabbit hole. It's not just going to be like, like you said, I'm just going to keep progressing and progressing and progressing. Sometimes it's what you need in, in that moment to set you up for greater success and contribution down the road in life. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually, you know, by design, perhaps. But I totally resonate with just the overstimulation of, of the modern world. And I think that's why I love going into nature so much. Like this past weekend, just by myself in the mountains, you just, yeah, you're connected. Like you value things, you appreciate things at a lot higher uh, level because you're able to actually take it all in instead of just being uh, distracted by these micro disturbances a thousand times a day. So I think that's something everyone can take away uh, as, as a means to improve their life, their quality of life is taking a moment, taking de-stimulation breaks where you're just not on your phone, you're just kind of, you don't even have to be meditating. You could just 
be present in the moment, which is, God, it's hard. But um, no, I want to shit. Yeah. Can I can I can I riff on that quickly too? Uh, yeah, let's do it. I think because I think, cause I think the 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 meditation to like you know just spending time in nature to just like kind of more general mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a distinction that oftentimes, especially people who are peddling meditation apps, just talk about how like you need to be meditating, but like that's totally bullshit, right? Like you yeah. know some Zen Buddhism will talk about you know that you have a work practice where just like doing the dishes is part of the practice, and like theoretically everything we do we can be more mindful and more attentive, mm-hmm. and therefore we'll feel much better about it. But one of the nice things I think that where being in nature, especially by yourself, has like a real leg up on uh, seated meditation is when you're surrounded by nature, it's it's like the ego death is sort of obvious. Not and I don't mean like ego death in the you know, in this like uh, K hole kind of way, but like mm-hmm. you you're surrounded by like this natural beautiful this natural beauty that's like so beyond our, our ability to produce, so beyond like even our comprehension. Um and it really like makes clear, it really situates your life into into something bigger, uh, which is like someone, uh, you know, an enjoyer, a uh, someone who can appreciate something and kind of pay the respect to it. Whereas I think sometimes, especially in like the tech bro meditation sphere, it becomes a little too like heady. And it's like, you know, guys sitting down like, oh, I'm going to be like master of the universe, like a little too Dr. Manhattan <laughs> and not enough just like, like, let's let's not get it twisted. Like the the earth is what supports us. We need to have an appreciation for nature, uh, and it kind of just really makes it obvious what our role in Earth is when we're in nature. Oh, it's so spot on. It's it's crazy, and yeah, you just get out there and you realize that whatever is going on out there doesn't care that that you're there. It's you're just a observer, and it actually you can be a part of that and see the the real i call call it the real world to be honest because it's the world we're designed to live in but yeah it's so true and when i was in the bay area had some roommates and you know it was like it's very trendy and like all you get all these kind of charlatans that are just you know spewing these apps and you have to do it a certain way but really it's just yeah living in the moment being mindful and, and realizing uh where you are in space and time uh, i think it's huge on on your mental framework and it's something that everybody can improve but i want to shift gears back to bitcoin and first off that's a fascinating i guess inception story of of cathedra i didn't know that i kind of figured it was something of that sort because i wasn't sure if you guys had joined after it was already started but yeah that's i mean that's really cool so i guess starting out is what did you do differently and how did you help get this like off the ground? Like you and AJ came in, what did you change? And what was the roadmap for success when you first started? And maybe we can get into after kind of how that's changed. Um, and that was when you said 2018, 19? Yeah, it'd be Q4 2021. So oh, okay, uh, that's right. 2018 is when you came back. Or Yeah, yeah. So the, um, the company went public in 2018. Uh, previous mm. management management had taken a public. It was actually one of the first. Fortress Technologies was one of the first publicly traded Bitcoin miners. Uh, publicly traded in Canada. Uh, came out right around the same time as you know Hive uh, and Riot, which were some of the other early uh, early movers there. Um, but you know the basically when AJ and I joined the business, uh, there was a legacy two megawatt site out in Washington with a bunch of S nines plugged in. So that was like you know two megawatts with twenty petahash for for folks who are familiar with these like mining uh, numbers. But then um, uh, there's also a partnership with Great American Mining, uh, and basically when AJ and I joined, you know, mining is a scale game, and so one of the things we wanted to do was to get to scale quickly so that we could really um, have like the the 
the tools we needed to go and tackle some of the big problems that we, we, we kind of saw uh, in the energy and mining space. And we were really interested in going after the flare gas plot. So we you know, bought a bunch of machines, hired a really smart team, uh, Isaac Fithian, who is our uh, head of manufacturing and field operations, rebrowning our CTO. Um, these were just some of the first two hires that we made that are still part of the company today. They were co-founders of Great American Mining. And they uh, basically, we brought them on to help us go after flare gas and mine with flare gas. Part of that was us. Could you explain that for for just the audience? Just what is, you know, flare gas mining? Why does it make perfect sense for for Bitcoin? Definitely. Um, And please continue to police me if I I say anything. It's easy for me to just be like, yeah, this is good stuff. But I have to remember that the audience might not know what this is. And and yeah, it would be good if you could just give an overview on, on flare gas mining. Totally. This is helpful calibration. So, um, I so basically, Bitcoin mining is is uh, and, and tell me if I'm, if I'm going uh, too basic here, but Bitcoin mining basically consumes energy to produce Bitcoin, right? You you basically plug in these computers, these uh, Bitcoin mining ASICs. ASIC stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit, but it really is just a special type of computer that's designed only to mine Bitcoin. Um, and so you plug in these computers into electricity, and you produce Bitcoin. Now the price of Bitcoin changes on any given day. So does the uh, number of other computers on the network. But uh, your costs really do not. Your costs are relatively fixed. And so you want cheap electricity. Um, there are a lot of different ways to get cheap electricity. But one of the, the common one, it's not that common right now, but uh, it's definitely gained popularity over the five years that folks have been working on it or more. Um, when There's a lot of waste energy out there. And so waste energy is theoretically cheapest and sometimes free. And so... One of these examples of waste energy is in the oil field. When you're pulling oil out of the ground, oftentimes there's associated natural gas. And this will vary depending on where you're pulling the oil, kind of the amount of gas that comes out relative to the oil, even the type of oil changes. You know, the the folks who work in the hydrocarbon industry and oil and gas in particular, like these are incredibly brilliant people working on very hard problems where they're basically, uh, you know, wrestling with, uh, with nature uh, and with these like rock formations to basically produce the things that keep us alive. So um, oftentimes when you pull oil out of the ground, natural gas comes out too. And if you really only care about the oil, uh, it's easier to transport the oil than it is the natural gas. Oil, you can just put it in barrels and ship them somewhere else. But with natural gas, uh, you need a pipeline to basically connect that. And it's a gas. So it's like volumetrically much more expansive uh, in terms of the unit of energy uh, compared to oil. So um, what you basically, what a lot of folks have done for a long time is they used to just let that methane into the atmosphere. Now, that methane uh, basically has different uh, impacts on the environment, on the atmosphere than CO2. Um, and so a lot of uh, producers have been incentivized to, instead of venting the methane in the atmosphere, to basically light it on fire. So that it's basically just a butane lighter, or it's a, basically it's a lighter going 24-7, basically just incinerating uh, methane and kind of just burning it up into the atmosphere. But that methane is still very useful. You know, during the uh, European energy crisis, which will bring us back to Cathedra, uh, European energy crisis about two years ago, you saw the, the cost of natural gas really skyrocketing to the point that some countries that depend on natural gas, like Pakistan, had to basically just sh- say, we're going to have to start browning out our grid because we can't afford the market price for natural gas anymore. So what, what flare gas Bitcoin mining is, is you take that gas that would be flared, you pipe it into a little mobile generator, and then you use that generator to turn it to electricity to power a Bitcoin mine. Um, and so that was the opportunity we wanted to go after. You know, famously, uh, you could power the entire Bitcoin mining network 
just with this flared, the amount of gas that's flared each year in the US, you know, five to 10 times over, right? So we're talking a fuck ton, a metric fuck ton of, of gas is getting flared each year. And we were trying to figure out a way to use that. So we, we ended up deciding to go stand up our own manufacturing operations so we could build our own modular data centers because the lead times at that time were very long for those. So we wanted to build our own boxes to send them out to someone else's oil field, rent a generator, burn that gas, and mine Bitcoin with it. But as I mentioned, at the, roughly the same time in Q1 2022, there was a European energy crisis, which turned into a global energy crisis, where you saw people hitting the streets in Kazakhstan because they couldn't afford to put gas in their car. You saw... Um, uh, countries like Pakistan basically just like sh say we're, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to participate in this market. There may be some blackouts, which obviously would negatively impact their citizens. And so what that meant is the cost of gas went up, the cost of those generators went up, and you would basically at times end up having to um, – uh, you, you basically were paying the same cost or even more than you were if you just plugged in the machine somewhere on the grid. So uh, we, we, we pivoted there. Um, and we basically have just been focused on uh, being opportunistic because Bitcoin is kind of this game of 4D chess. How can we basically produce the most Bitcoin possible? And so if the market's telling you something, you need to respond. And so we basically prioritize getting machines plugged into low cost power elsewhere on the grid. So that way we could uh, maximize value for shareholders. And then early this year, because things have cooled down a little bit, we're able to get back off grid with a partnership with a company down in Texas. And, you know, we still think there's a ton of potential there. But maybe to, to zoom out, that, that's kind of a, a little bit of a, a genesis of like maybe some of the things that have changed. Um, you know, we, everyone's got a plan till, till basically the market punches you in the face. And so we've, we were just like the, the entire time we've thought of ourselves as a manager of a portfolio of hash rate. And so our, our view, and this is kind of a, you know, we're finance guys, Bitcoin mining is definitely a blue collar business, but though the purpose of buying an ASIC is to produce Bitcoin. And so if you're not producing Bitcoin for your shareholders, you know, you're not, you're not doing your job. And so we've always been laser focused on that, but more cosmically and philosophically speaking, and I should have opened with this, but we've, you know, our motto at Cathedra is that sound money and abundant energy are the keys to human flourishing. You know, we're Bitcoin maximalists, we're energy maximalists, and there are many different ways where you can basically uh, create human prosperity and use Bitcoin mining to, uh, to make energy systems more efficient and to really try to, um, to, to not only produce Bitcoin for less, but also to produce, you know, net new jewels for humanity. And so that's really what animates us and what excites us. Now, market realities make us need to, uh, to make call it short-term deviations to make sure that, you know, we're still doing right by shareholders. Um, but the long-term view is that there's no human prosperity without energy, energy abundance. There, you know, there's no such thing as a prosperous energy poor society. You need energy abundance. That's table stakes for anything else that we care about and any other quality of life that we care about. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I've always thought that there's like a lot of energy waste out there. That's why I think that's kind of interesting what you guys are doing with like that gas. Because I, I mean, I remember as a kid just driving by refineries because there was a big refinery in my town where they would just do that. They just like burn the, the methane out or whatever because they had no use for it or they didn't want to deal with it. So they just burn it. I always wondered why they they did that. But it's like, so, I, so I'd actually like to get into some of the energy stuff, if you don't mind, and just yep. sort of like find where some bridge gaps are that like Bitcoin can fill. In, in sort of that energy waste uh, that may be produced elsewhere and sort of like how you guys are bridging gaps and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I th think thinking through energy systems, like there, there's, there's a lot of waste and it's for, for a couple of reasons. One, you talk about this refinery. That, that refinery makes so much money from its like primary business 
that it's really just not worth the trouble for them to find a way to think about something like, you know, uh, Bitcoin mining. And really before Bitcoin mining, there weren't many alternatives. You could maybe you need to buy a generator to create electricity to then just like put that into a load bank, which is effectively just a heat sink, a giant resistor that's just going to pump heat out there. Uh, and, you know, Tristan, I'm as an electrical engineer, I'm sure Tristan probably can opine on this a ton as well. But like that or think about uh, what something called a reserve margin, which is, you know, uh, grids historically, um, because they never know if there's going to be a short term spike in demand or maybe another power plant's automatically going to go down. They typically will produce a little more power, have more power basically on hand uh, than, than can be distributed. And of course, the grid needs to balance. So if if everyone turns on their TV at the same time. You don't want that shutting down the grid and basically hospitals losing power. So Bitcoin mining really thrives at those. And there are companies doing really interesting things like the whole Texas demand response play that we alluded to a little bit before. I think that's a really interesting example for me of a way to uh, to counteract malinvestment in renewables uh, that are far away from any demand. Um, basically creating these transmission bottlenecks and kind of creating some uh, some weird pricing on the grid. Bitcoin mining is there basically to step in and smoothen out that volatility. We talked about flare gas. There are folks working on uh, using landfill gas to mine Bitcoin too. Uh, one area that's near and dear to my heart is nuclear power. Uh, so using uh, you, you could have a nuclear power plant that is able to participate in the real-time electricity market uh, and basically scale up and down its generation or the amount of power it's selling to the grid by using Bitcoin mining as a demand response partner. So Really, the, the beautiful thing about Bitcoin, about call like this decentralized innovation, you know, Bitcoin mining, anyone anywhere in the world can plug in an ASIC uh, and they can create Bitcoin with that. And so as a result, you, you're having people look at what are these areas of waste energy near me that maybe I could use, maybe I could turn into Bitcoin mining. And even if 90 percent of them fail, there, there's a potential for really uh, meaningful innovation there in terms of just making, you know, uh, I'm not ever going to be one to say we should use less energy, but if we already have this energy and we're wasting it, we should use it. You know, as our, as Isaac Fithian on our team is fond of saying, you know, in, in nature, many times organisms will use another organism's waste as their food, as their fuel. And, and I think that's the right mindset to have with Bitcoin mining. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's so important because yeah the the load response demand response um, aspect of bitcoin is, is the most fascinating to me especially you know from an uh, engineering perspective because it's really a huge problem that people don't understand maybe they're starting to conceptualize it a bit more how fragile the grid is and how power how much power is stranded and how fickle uh, demand response is in general um, so that use case and that translation from a digital asset into the real world through energy, through mining is, uh, it's just so beautiful. It's, it's uh, unbelievable that, you know, this is kind of how it's come to fruition. But I guess there's still a lot and, and there's still a lot of FUD in the energy space. You know, renewables um, need to be the future, um, climate change, carbon, hydrocarbon, all this stuff. But, 
in reality, I think what a lot of Bitcoiners and what you're saying, Safedine, and then you know, Fossil Fu- Future, that that book, um, it's, it's it's true because when you get when you have cheap sources of energy, you allow humanity to kind of prosper, and we've kind of had this weird dynamic and viewpoint of energy generation sources over the past 20, 30 years. So I'm curious, it seems like we're at this inflection point right now where like nuclear is getting more popular. How, how do you see this kind of playing out and, and how do you really, what do you think is the best option? You know, like nuclear baseload and, and then just highly efficient nat gas. I mean, take advantage of renewables where they are. But how, how do you view energy generation generation sources kind of at a high level and what needs to happen to really move society forward? Yeah, it's a great question. And my, my answer used to just be all nuclear with Bitcoin mining to balance the load. <laughs> but, you know, my, my views maybe now I, I – I, uh, if Might need some pinker plants uh, in there mixed in. Well, I mean you can always have the Bitcoin miner switch off. But uh, I think you know, my view now has changed where I basically um, – I, I, I'm not going to think of the perfect energy system. You know, ideally, markets are free, and the, the free market will basically tell us what makes sense where, because energy is always a local phenomenon. But my, my, the one framework I do still have is that all uh, energy creation or energy generation, as we think of it, is really just entropy reduction, right? Mm-hmm. So first law of thermodynamics, uh, you know, energy is conserved. Second law of thermodynamics, um, basically, if you have a hot cup of water, it will eventually become room temperature. You know, he, uh, a hot body connected to a cold one will eventually dissipate heat until the two bodies are the same temperature. And, and there, there are many more sort of nuances with that. But I think about the second law of thermodynamics all the time. And in that light, you know, there's, it's not like we're creating new energy. What we're doing is we're finding a way to better channel energy into a more dense, a more servile, a more useful form, right? Um, some things like oil and gas, like, you know, Safedine calls this nature's battery, right? Alex Epstein does too. And, and, and I think, you know, it makes a ton of sense. It's like low entropy, dense energy that we can control. Um, that's basically, we just need to figure out how to pull it out of the ground. I think, uh, something like nuclear energy is even more low, uh, is even lower entropy in my mind, because think of the Diablo Canyon, uh, nuclear reactor in California. It's the last nuclear power plant in California. It produces five to ten percent of the state's electricity using twelve acres of land. Uh, the, the the largest wind farm, Alta Wind Energy Center, uh, it takes up tens of thousands of acres, uh, and on average, it, the uptime average is like twenty five percent, around four hundred megawatts, versus uh, Diablo Canyon's roughly two megawatts. So we're talking about a totally a two gigawatts. Sorry, uh, like we're talking about a totally different order of magnitude there. Um, and so, I, you know, if, if the name of the game is how can we best channel the most energy into the most useful form, the most fungible form possible, while disrupting the land as little as possible? Like, what, what is a really – if entropy tells us how the energy in a system is distributed among its parts. So if you only need 12 acres to produce a fuck ton of energy and you can leave the rest of the land to be untouched for, you know, for whatever other use for nature preserves or for farms, you know, that, that seems like a, a high-functioning, like – that, that's the future I want to live in. I don't want to live in a future where you have uh, mountains and entire ecosystems decimated just so we can throw these you know, solar panels up any which way. Um, yeah, is, is my personal view about energy systems. So I have biases, um, but I feel less of a top-down impulse than I used to. 
Yeah, I, I think it's important. Um, and I'll let Ryan chime in, but it's it's just like energy density is it's really hard to argue with. And and you mentioned free market, but it's not real. Like if it was a free market, nobody would be build, building solar panels and 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 wind farms unless they were just off the grid. And it's like it works small scale, not large scale, really. Um, as Preacher well the as people think. Yeah. Preaching to the choir. Like if you if you want to go live in the middle of West Texas or have your own ranch in like a self sovereign energy system, fuck yeah, buy some solar panels, buy a battery. But like, do do we need like when I hear about solar panels being built in Maine, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> my crazy. brother in Christ, like what the fuck are you thinking? You know, this is like you're gonna generate power ten percent of the time. Yeah, it's like doing that in Michigan as well, like manufacturing solar panels in in Detroit or something like that, where there's like no sun for like six months of the year. Um, but no, I totally agree. I mean, it's all about, like you said, it's like efficiency. Um, and I just, I mean, it goes back to like, just understanding. I don't think most people understand that they've sort of been greenwashed on like some of the ideas of like what, what like clean energy is and stuff like that. And when you look at like nuclear, it's super interesting actually. And I haven't delved too deep into it. I watched an interesting documentary on it a couple months ago, but, uh, like you can produce like hundred X the amount of energy, uh, per square footage, like you were saying, so like 500 500 like acres of solar panels you could still make 100 times that energy with like one plant or something like that that takes up like one tenth the amount of space and stuff like that so it but at the end of the day it's like our i don't don't even know if the people making those decisions are even thinking about that anyways like they know those things there's no way that people that are doing this stuff don't know that so it's just about continually you know educating the public about it and stuff like that yeah, I mean. yeah, and it's like you know the for for we we live in a world where uh, carbon emissions are top of mind um, for you know for, for reasons we could we could talk about a lot um, and what basically this is what subsidies do where uh, subsidies are being offered an entrepreneur or a developer says oh uh, this actually makes decent economic sense because of these subsidies I'm going to go make some solar panels so they're they're just like responding to what the the called the incentives are. Um, but of course, you know, I think like, even if you want to take the carbon emissions sort of framework, uh, for granted, I think there's an honest case to be made. Like if we had just pursued natural gas and then nuclear energy, and we were basically just focused on those two and we weren't burning coal to make solar panels to ship via diesel freighter over to the U S to plug them into our house where they only produce electricity 15% of the time. Like, I think there's an honest question to be made uh, or an honest question around what would, uh, produce more carbon over the life cycle of uh, all this different infrastructure. Because keep in mind, these solar panels only have a useful life of like 20, 25 years. There's no real way to recycle them right now versus nuclear power plants can, you know, many of the first ones built in the U.S. are still operating. So, um, but again, that's none of my business. <laughs> Who are you to say these things that are hurtful to the the people at B in renewable world. But hey, if it wasn't for all these renewables, maybe we wouldn't have found at how good of a you know large flexible load Bitcoin miners are. So everything happens for a reason, right? You don't really know what works uh, better until you find something that is not working that well. Um, so getting back to just running a Bitcoin mining company, because this has got to be wanting, one of the like most challenging and like you're saying, just dynamic businesses to run and right now is a prime example of that because we're what six months uh or less away from the having or the happening whatever you want to call it um whatever you 
choose. And that's where, if you don't know what that means, people, that's where the issuance of Bitcoin per block gets cut in half. So basically the amount of Bitcoin that mining companies uh, like Cathedra are churning out every 10 minutes is being reduced by 50%. So how does a mining company prepare for the happening? Um, and how do you kind of, yeah, I guess, take that with everything? And when, when is there like a pivot in, in the business plan, like immediately after? Or is this happening already, you know, eight months ago? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So the having is the age old question in Bitcoin. It, will the having lead to a bear market? Is the a bull market? Is the bull market because of just broader macro trends? Is, is it just a coincidence? Are markets efficient? Uh, is is Marin the astrologer, TA, uh, technical analyst? Is she just been right all along and it's all due to the celestial bodies moving around as they do? Uh, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question. And this is why I think one of the reasons why running a Bitcoin mining company is so fun, because it is so dynamic. You know, is China going to invade Taiwan? What does that do to the to the world of Bitcoin mining? Is there going to be another energy crisis? Are we heading into a global recession? Are we heading into World War III? Um, for us, we've always been focused on the cockroach mindset, and so by that we mean we're willing to get scrappy. Whatever, whatever. If we can do something that's maybe unorthodox, but that we think can uh, help us hold more Bitcoin at the end of the day, we're going to do that. And so one of the big things that we started working on around last year, and I say we, but Really, all the credit goes to Isaac Fitting and Reed Browning and our team. Um, right after the FTX bullshit happened, uh, we had a bunch of machines coming in. And it wasn't even worth uh, paying for the hosting deposit to get these machines running. Um, they were basically, we'd just be paying to have them run at break even. So uh, what we ended up doing instead is jamming them into one of our old data centers and underclocking them all by 50%. Now, for, for the folks listening, underclocking uh, is basically when you jailbreak your machine effectively. So you buy a machine from Bitmain, it takes a certain amount of power, it produces a, a certain amount of uh, hash, a certain hash rate, uh, which is basically the computational power of the machine. Um, and most people just think of them as like Lego blocks where you like plug them in, boom, that's what they do. Uh, so Isaac Fithian and rebranding and our team had a crazy idea. Well, what if we just put 50% of the power into these guys? Uh, maybe it'll be more efficient. And so what we basically ended up doing was being able to leapfrog a generation of efficiency, uh, basically from 30 joules per terahash uh, to 23 joules per terahash. And if you don't know that metric, just ignore it. But basically, we just made the machines more efficient so we could hold more dollar, uh, more Bitcoin at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, as we think about what does it mean going to the halving, it's basically, you know, theoretically revenue cuts in half. Now, it doesn't actually happen that way because a lot of miners need to switch off the grid. So it's a situation where you don't necessarily need to be faster than the bear. You just need to be faster than the guy next to you. Uh, and so with that, we, um, you know, we're basically thinking, obviously, we're bullish on Bitcoin long term, but you never really know with Bitcoin price. And until it's clear that if we're in like a bull market and maybe things are changing, we're just going to be focused on uh, being conservative to maximize optionality and uh, going into uh, a defensive position where we're underclocking machines uh, in, in sites with low cost power. Uh, and then, of course, you know, if and when there is a bull market, we, we, we've, we're always thinking about what we would do if there was a bull market. We have a bunch of interesting projects that we're always working on, trying to figure out what the future of this industry is going to be uh, and seeing if we can, can have a small advantage there. But so it's basically, you're constantly toying with these two different ideas, which is like, one, uh, how can I make sure that I survive shit really hitting the fan? Uh, but then two, what can I do? What are the 
the projects I can work on that will give us the most long-term upside and give us the potential for doing something really transformative. And so I'm always really excited about what we're working on, but you're basically shifting back and forth between those two mindsets. So it sounds like you're kind of just, yeah, just being extremely dynamic and, and seeing what what kind of the world gives you in terms of opportunity, um, which makes sense. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like at a large scale, and, and I don't know how this differs from, you know, small, medium-sized mining company to like a, a riot, for for example. And I remember at, at the Jackson Hole Ski Summit, to me, it seemed like everyone was just trying to mine as much Bitcoin as possible, kind of pre-having, and then, you know, figure it out from there. And, um, you know, now there's other mining companies, what, I believe, like Luxor, that's kind of just doing more things to hedge their, I guess, hedge their bets, make more money in other avenues outside of mining to just be a profitable company. So I guess the question is, is there ever a risk or is there ever a complete time where any mining company is like, hundred percent safe or is there always that inherent risk that you know maybe they didn't make enough right decisions price tanks and things could get ugly um per se say if post having there is a global recession we do drop in price quite a bit things uh could be hairy for for miners you know it certainly could and then one of the things also like one of the big differences for us we have five employees, right? We're, yeah. we're, I think Riot has 500. So we're, we're, definitely, we're definitely smaller. And so that's kind of why we, we resort to this cockroach mindset where it's just like, let's be scrappy um, and let's do what we can to really position ourselves as best as possible. Now, you know, I'm, I'm historically, I've been a permable, right? Before this job, I was always super bullish on Bitcoin. You know, maybe, maybe I missed a credit card payment or two, trying to stack some more sats, um, you know, as one does, but uh, I, I think now what being in this seat now for two years has really done is uh, give me a little more of like a measured approach towards risk. Uh, I didn't think the Fed was going to be able to keep hiking even through summer of 2022, let alone you know to, to today we're still talking about potentially interest rate hikes. So um, I, I've been basically I, I, I definitely I definitely agree. Even riot, like theoretically, if Bitcoin goes to zero, riots fuck too. Uh, well, maybe, maybe they're not fucked too because they can just sell power to the grid and maybe they have attractive PPI. But, you know, I think this is um, – that that's kind of just like the nature of the beast where you never really have certainty. It's just like how can – like how – how you're basically uh, – it's like you, you have like this boat. And I don't sail, so maybe I'll butcher this analogy. But like you, you have this boat. You're not sure if a storm's going to come in or if you're going to get like a really nice tailwind. And so you're trying to figure out how – what sh how should I be positioning the boat and the sail uh, given what I think is going to happen. now. If you position for like uh, a nice tailwind and the storm comes in, you're probably fucked. But um, if you if you aren't bullish enough, that's something that, you know you're still alive. But maybe you just left money on the table. And so you know, I think now we care we care a lot about not like even if you, we we say that there's going to be a bull market after the halving, and I know there's probably another thing to talk about here too. But we say there's going to be a bull market after the halving. If that bull market happens two months after the halving versus twelve months after the halving. Um, you, you know, you, you could be done by, by the, in that 10 month period. And so it's mostly just making sure you stay in the game to see that bull market. But this like, maybe this is a separate point. We view the future of Bitcoin mining long-term as you need, uh, multiple revenue streams. 
right? The best Bitcoin miners are going to have multiple revenue streams. They're not just buying ASICs and plugging them in. They're using the natural synergies with Bitcoin mining in the energy sector, or they found some other way to basically have two revenue streams. So it's not just the Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining is a complement to something else, whether that's heat. Uh, like if you have a space heater in your home, why would you not just have an, uh, a miner? Or whether that's doing demand response type things, or if you're a stronghold and you have a power plant that you, you view Bitcoin mining as just another buyer of your energy. So you can either sell power to the grid or you can mine Bitcoin with it. I think that's the future. And so that's the thing that we're working towards long-term is developing um, those auxiliary revenue streams so that you're not totally beholden to Bitcoin price. No, that makes a lot of sense. I was just going to chime in briefly before I'm sure Tristan has a lot to say. But um, one thing I was thinking about was just like, it's, I, think that, and I think you're totally right. I think the future is like, what can accompany this? And like we to, uh, spoke to um, someone named Colin, whose last name I forget, uh, several several months ago, and he was really my introduction into the mining space. I had I really didn't know much about Bitcoin mining or what it was, other than I knew a guy in a friend of mine who lived in Denver, whose house was always hella hot from his freaking miners running all the time. Like that's all I really knew about anything about Bitcoin. But he heated his like whole warehouse that they had their mining facility in with just their miners, and I thought that, that was such cool cool thing like they didn't have to pay any like overhead heating cost for like the warehouse which housed like a whole other company alongside it in the same warehouse for the whole winter and so it's sort of like these uh applicable things and i think like you said sending like power back to the grid or whatever it is um it's about finding those sort of nuggets in, in between that are going to be like the future of of mining which i find really interesting and i think there's a lot of potential there i think it's just like any other company right like you're investing in something in projects. Um, if it is a huge success, you wish you would have invested more into it or, or made more inventory, um, for example, or you could have a $20 million project that's a complete dud. So, and then that could potentially force you to sell off a piece of your company or, or go bankrupt. So, I, you know, there is, I asked these kind of basic questions about risk profile because it's it seems to be a large concern and and yeah you see the volatility in in that in the stock prices of of these big mining companies it's more volatile than than bitcoin itself which is hilarious but at the end of the day i think yeah the big takeaway there is kind of just staying in the game the longest and the way you think that you're going to do that and it seems to be aligned in mindset across the board is is diversity of of revenue streams and before we get into the having um, price mining effect um, as well. I, I want to just curious about what your thoughts are on, on the evolution of, of ASICs and how that's kind of going to, you know, change the future of Bitcoin. Have we reached like a point in, you know, Moore's law where the, you know, the hash, the hash rate of, of like a, a miner that's coming out that's brand new is, is only going to be so much better. And I know, you know, water cooling and things like that is a, is a big thing, but how do you see, I guess, the evolution of, of the mining capability from the ASIC perspective, perhaps changing the game? And have we reached kind of maybe a start of that plateau, plateau of like technology innovation being so dramatic? Because obviously we've gone from, you know, laptop mining to S9s to, um, you know, 150 terahash second plus 200 close to it um now so it's a it's been a big evolution in a short amount of time and that's kind of why i'm asking i asked colin this as well um when we podcasted with him yeah is, is this colin harper from luxor no no it's uh oh. distributed hash so our service nice yeah uh yeah i think what they're doing is pretty cool 
But so with, with respect to um, with respect to the question on ASICs, I'm not a not a semiconductor expert, but it seems intuitive to me that uh, you know as as uh, each of these improvements in ASIC efficiency has come from oftentimes uh, TSMC, the largest foundry mm-hmm. in the world, or Samsung, these big foundries, basically um, using a, a smaller node process, they call it, right? So uh, the S17, I believe, was originally the 7 nanometer, or S19 was originally a 7 nanometer process, then it moved to mm-hmm. a 5 nanometer process. The XP was a 5 nanometer process. And so these they're, they're basically moving, getting tighter and tighter. But what's changed now, I'd say, since the S19, is that now Bitcoin mining has basically caught up all the way with the rest of the semiconductor industry, right? So when the first Bitcoin mining ASIC was produced by Kanan back in 2013, uh, the called the next like eight years were uh, Bitmain and these other manufacturers uh, catching up with what is in your iPhone, and now they're caught up, but there's still there's still incremental progress, right? You know, uh, TSMC now has a three nanometer process, and and they'll probably continue to improve. I think the question around Moore's law ultimately boils down to uh, quantum tunneling, which is, again, something above my pay grade. But what I'm really just trying to do is relay the um, re- relay the discourse and kind of I'll say which side I'm leaning towards at the end. But the, uh, the, the idea is that if you get too, too, too small and the chips are way too small, then quantum tunneling can mean electrons are just like jumping around. And so that basically uh, creates noise and redu- makes it harder for the transistors to do their work, namely, you know, using the SHA-256 hash function to try to mine Bitcoin. Um, so if you, the idea is if you get too small, quantum physics comes into effect and things start to break down. They don't work the same as they did, you know, at, uh, call it maybe it's half a nanometer as they did at three nanometers. Um, I, I've not deeply looked into the science yet, but that, that is called like the discourse. So the bull, the bull case for ASIC efficiency saying they're going to get more efficient forever is that Quantum tunneling is not an issue. We're going to keep getting them more efficient. There are other things to optimize, even if quantum tunneling is an issue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so as a, you know, as a result, ASIC efficiency is always going to keep improving. The, the bear case is that you know, at a certain point, and we might, we might not be there yet, but we're getting close, things are just – you're not going to be able to reduce the size of the chips, and that's going to be locked in. So you need to look to other things to make efficient. And there's maybe some other marginal changes to be made there, but we're talking about like a general flatlining of ASIC efficiency. Now, I think I probably lean towards that latter camp, but you, I, I think that's mostly just based on synthesizing the things I've heard really, really smart people talking about and kind of just using my own bullshit detector. But one of the issues that we don't really talk about is that, you know, if we're, so the, the S, uh, and again, I'm going to use numbers again, so sorry, folks, but uh, the S19J Pro is 30 joule per terahash machine. The XP, S19XP was 21 joules per terahash. Uh, if you get down to these new gens where we're talking like 16 to 18 joules per terahash, obviously these are like these are big improvements because if you're going from 21 to 16, that's still like a 25% improvement, right? So that's still that's still pretty uh, a pretty meaningful improvement. Um, I think the thing people aren't talking about is that these ASICs are going to stick around for much longer. So you you might have an S19J Pro last like 10 years. Like we already have some, we still have some S9s plugged in on the network and those came out seven years ago. So I think there may not be the same efficiency gains being made, but ASICs will be lasting longer. And so since ASICs are lasting longer, it has a similar called bearish effect on network hash rate where network hash rate goes way up and it becomes harder and harder to mine, which is why I think the future of Bitcoin mining is going to be folks who have multiple revenue uh, streams. Uh, but then at the same time, you might see miners that only switch on 10, 20% of the time, right? Like they might just be waiting 
for this bullish run in Bitcoin mining, they turn on and then maybe transaction fees go back down and they switch off. So um, it, it is a game. Of, this is, again, why Bitcoin mining is part of 4D chess. Not only does it depend on like the semiconductor technology, but it also depends on what's happening with global supply chains. You know, are Bitmain and TSM, are they able to get the chips? If China invades Taiwan, is TSMC going to burn down the foundry? Like the, the, these things, uh, you know, they're, each one of these is a fascinating question in and of themselves. But in the real world, the way they all intermingle, uh, sometimes it becomes a very different game. Like even if the efficiency does keep improving, one of, one of the many adages I've learned from Bitcoin mining is you're either hashing or you're not. And so if there's a bull run, like say ETF gets approved tomorrow and Bitcoin spikes to 50K, Someone has a futures order for XPs, or sorry, for S21s in uh, Q3 of next year. Awesome. Like, sort of, there's nothing they can do right now about the Bitcoin uh, mining economics because they're not plugged in. Yeah, I think, well, you did a great job. I mean, I kind of have an understanding a little bit. I mean, the quantum tunneling aspect is, is fascinating and that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast from the health perspective, but then in the semiconductor perspective, which is the industry that I just left. Um, yeah, it seems like there's incremental improvements that are going to continue to be made, but it's it's probably going to taper off in the life cycle, like you're saying, of these chips is, is going to be longer. And that yeah, that's a good thing. And again, like you're saying, at 50,000, you know, all of a sudden S9s become way more profitable. People are going to go plug them in. So I think it's going to be, yeah, it's just going to continue to be dynamic. It's going to continue to be this very ultra competitive market where perhaps, yeah, it's really only in peak demand response time where this large amount of hash rate comes on online. And I, I think you answered the question as well that I had on, on just this increasing you know, the the difficulty is, is skyrocketed, right? The collective hash rate has just skyrocketed the past couple of years. And, and what is what does that mean? Uh, and, you know, some brain dead ETH, ETH fanatics will say that's a bad thing. But that's uh, clearly from a lack of understanding. But I guess, yeah, the, the kind of end here is, you know, is that that having the having really the indicator you think of a bull market or the fuel do miners really have that big of an effect? Are they really um, playing that big of a role? Or do you think it's just a, a culmination of many things going on typically at the time of a halving and a bull market? Yeah, so to, to I guess lay out also the trade-off before I give my opinion, because I think that, that is the increasingly timely question, right? Like in every four years, sort of like clockwork. Um, That's right. Uh, yeah, like the – so on the one end of the spectrum – Markets aren't efficient. Miners sell less. Bitcoin mean number go up. On the other hand, markets are perfectly efficient. If any, if anyone had a brain, they would price this in already. We've already priced it in, I think. All right, I think I can speak for us. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, I uh, I couldn't express my belief anymore other than having all of my personal net worth in my company and in Bitcoin. Um, so I, I couldn't be taking a more bullish view. But you know, I, I, my personal view is there's. I think that we will see a bull a bull market, but I'm not sure if it's because of the halving, right? Um, like if the ETF happens around the same time as the having, or, you know, the, finally the effect of 5% interest rates finally wreaks havoc on the economy and the fed needs to step in with even more intervention or maybe even if it's fiscal stimulus too, right? Like fiscal or monetary stimulus, uh, would be really, really bullish on Bitcoin. Um, uh, or and then three, the one thing I've always wondered is, is the having just like a shelling point, right? You know, people talk about efficient market hypothesis and, you know, I, I, my view in markets in general is that that's sort of at, on, there's like a gradient associated with that, right? Like 
In the short term, the market's a voting machine. In the long term, the market's a weighing machine. And you know, I, I think in general, different markets have different degrees of efficiency, but markets still can be dumb. And there, I see inefficiencies in markets all the time, especially in Bitcoin mining. So um, you know, I, I I am not sure if I will say that the having in the supply like supply demand dynamics lead to um, the bull market or the they're the cause of the bull market because you can never really say in the real world where you can't have repeated trials you can never say this is what caused it right like but I think it seems like we're going to get an ETF tremendously bullish if we get you know uh, multiple billion dollars of Bitcoin or basically flowing into these ETFs that has a similar effect where we're shrinking the size of the float uh, obviously it also is a huge buying pressure because every family office or like private wealth manager and their mother is going to click go. And sorry, the sun's coming right in my eyes right now, but we're, we're going to hit click go. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to see uh, a huge buy, buy volume on Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, I think, I think part of it too is like the bottom of a bear market is always the moment of peak bearishness, right? Um, like that's the thing to keep in mind. It's not necessarily that things are worse, but it's the outlook is worst. And it definitely seems like, like what could cause Bitcoin to go down now? Maybe, you know, who knows, maybe Binance actually isn't solvent. Like that would suck. Um, but you know, I think, I, I think in general, like what else can you sort of throw at Bitcoin right now when you've had some of the largest Bitcoin exchanges and Bitcoin companies go bankrupt, you've had these massive, all these miners go bankrupt or need to sell a ton of Bitcoin to pay down their debt. Like, and, and Bitcoin's taking it all in the chin. Like, sure. We went down below previous all time high, but we, we still have like this, like the growing, like army of cyber hornets who just keep stacking sats to try to like get some, you know, financial freedom. And so. I, you know, I, I, I personally, I've been wrong before. I'm feeling cautiously optimistic about things. Uh, and whether that's because of the having, whether that's because of the ETF or because there'll be some change in, in fiscal and monetary policy here in the US, I don't really know. But the fact that Bitcoin on Friday, when there's concerns about uh, the US getting involved in Israel and Palestine, uh, when you have gold, oil and Bitcoin all pumping on that, I think that kind of shows that the market's waking up. Larry Fink said it's like a flight to quality, and I have my, some reservations about Larry Fink. But when, when you, Bitcoin is being viewed, uh, you know, alongside those assets, like I think that's tremendously bullish because it shows that people are kind of waking up to the power of Bitcoin as this sort of self-sovereign way to store your value and to hold your wealth. I just think it's you know it's this fun game we play, right? Like guessing when things are going to happen. Is this the cause and the effect? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because Bitcoin is inevitable and the price appreciation is inevitable. You know, what's your time frame? And if you're going to try and play like, you know, market uh, market maker here and try and be like, oh, well, it could go down to, you know, back to the low 20s or something. And then I'm going to buy it and then I'm going to ape in like, you know, is that worth the risk? No, of course not. So that's why DCAing, dollar cost averaging is always the best option. And the best option to buy Bitcoin to me is you know, today is the best time and, and tomorrow is the next best time. So it's it's fascinating to hear kind of just that perspective on, on mining in general, um, because that's been, you know, so correlated with, you know, bull markets and, and the, the having. And, but to me, it also, you know, we have what, 19 and a half approaching 20 million Bitcoin now. So the, the having, the issuance is maybe less of a significant impact uh, as before because there's just more Bitcoin in circulation. But yeah, overall, I mean, 
Gosh, yeah. Couldn't couldn't be more bullish. I think a lot of people get hyper bullish like very quickly, like the past three days. I'm just like, wow, okay, here's some calls for 200K, 150K. Like, <laughs> I, I love it. Like, it, I think it's good. It brings outside attention into the space, but people really, they lose uh, being humble very, very quick. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a fun dynamic. But hey, I mean, why wouldn't you be cheered on? your your team i i like when the number goes down personally because i know it's gonna go up eventually so i'm like cheap sats fuck yeah you know 15k 16k that that was like so obvious to me that that was really like an inflection point um yeah. and I'm, I'm glad i bought some down there which i always wish i had more but that's how she goes no i think i think that's very wise and i think also to your, to your point it's like it, it is a lot of like all the sports tribalism where folks are like oh, yeah. oh my number's going up. Yay. Like, fuck you guys. And, but I think, uh, yeah, you, you, you're totally right. And if, if you want to, if you have your time preference low enough, you realize it's all going to work out in the end. Now running a Bitcoin mining company makes it harder because when FTX stuff happens and your margins get slashed, you're like, okay, so my salary is the first cost we cut. So I'm cutting my salary to zero so that we can make sure the company's on side from a cash flow perspective, which means, uh, no, no 15 K sats, but, I definitely, I definitely agree that like that's the right mindset to have, which is like, you know, let's just lower our time preference. It'll come when it comes. We don't need to be day trading in and out of Bitcoin. Yeah, power to you for that. And, and that's a great point too, highlighting that is, yeah, there's been so much that has blown up in the past two years and, and, and look where we're at. And we have all this bullish sentiment. Like, you know, yeah, what what else could you could you throw at us? I mean, it's yeah, Binance and, and, and other things. I mean, to me it's like, yeah, the global macroeconomic picture, I could totally see the floor falling out of, of traditional markets and, and maybe that that affects Bitcoin as a risk on asset, technically. But it's inevitable that, like you said, they're probably gonna have to step in, intervene and do something about the, you know, situation because that's just how we roll here uh, with with fiscal monetary policy. But it's just inevitable. And that's the beauty of it, folks. So yeah, it's it's a fun time. I mean, it's just so fun to just be involved in this. I mean, it's it must be kind of a, a roller coaster but an exciting position to be in for you as well so i think it's badass what you're doing i guess the last question is you know how, how do these small you know eventually do the big mining companies just gobble everything up or like what does mining look like in 40 years like it up right now we're we're transitioning out of like home mining is not even a thing anymore really it's just for hobbyists you know people like heating their hot tub or heating their home in wyoming for example um but it's really trending more and more towards you need some severe capital in the game to be a miner um is that going to accelerate you think uh continuously or do you think there'll be a nice niche for small medium-sized mining companies still yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think at a long enough time horizon, and 40 years is long enough for me, um, Bitcoin's indistinguishable. Bitcoin mining is indistinguishable from the energy sector, right? It's fully saturated the energy sector. Now, you still may have some small miners who maybe have like some weird, like they happen to own a small-scale hydro plant, and so they're mining Bitcoin there. Like, So you, may, you might still have some small-scale miners, but I think at that point, it's fully... Um, it's sort of like a virus that's like fully spread and like is all the way in any sort of nook and cranny that that um, uh, that makes sense. So, you know, I think that's why our, our goal at Cathedral is to build a business at that intersection. You know, we, we, we are tremendously bullish on Bitcoin, tremendously bullish on the impact of energy and humanity. And so 
our goal is figuring out a way to basically bridge that gap between Bitcoin and the energy sector. And it's something we, we, we think about a lot. But I think to to zoom out and maybe go to the first first point you mentioned as well, which is like, that's what makes this all so fun, is that there are no rules. There are no rules for sort of uh, what we do in Bitcoin mining, no rules for what you guys do. We're seeing these massive paradigm shifts happen in so many pockets around the world right now. And like in every aspect of life, it's just like amazing to be uh, young and, and trying to be a part of that change and watching uh, the, basically the world like shift before our eyes and, and kind of doing whatever we can to make the, the positive impact in our pocket of the universe to the best extent we can. So uh, I, I think it's, it's an incredibly invigorating time to be working on these things. Amen, brother. Well, it's it's awesome to gain this insight. And I tell it every time I, I love talking to the people who are like, you know, boots on the ground, driving this forward, because yeah, without you guys, you know, without the people actually building solutions, building companies around Bitcoin, then it would just be a, a white paper, really, it wouldn't be actually um, commanding change and inspiring change and forcing people to hop on board and value decentralization and questioning the, you know, the mainstream narrative and, and taking personal responsibility over their life, over their finances. So that's what it's all about. How can people support Cathedra? So you're listed on, is it the Canadian Stock Exchange only or is it U.S. as well? Yeah, so um, right now we're listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Board. The ticker is okay. CBIT. We also, you can buy, if you, if you have like a U.S. brokerage, you can, uh, our, our ticker is, um, CBTTF. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're on Twitter at Cathedral Bitcoin. Uh, my handle is at underscore Drew Armstrong underscore. Um, but yeah, you know, we, if you, if you're interested in any of these topics, please reach out because, you know, I think that is the thing that Bitcoin always has. I do think of all the shit coins, uh, you're comparing Bitcoin and all the shit coins, the community with Bitcoin is so special. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that's what's like, that's what brought us together, Tristan. Um, but also it's like, you know, anytime you talk to a Bitcoiner, you know that their values aligned uh, and, and everyone's so smart and has a million amazing ideas. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out if anyone's interested in any of this stuff. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for coming on. This is great chat. I think hopefully it uh, wakes up people to be more knowledgeable about Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin in general and energy markets. So that's uh, what we love to talk about here on Decentralized Radio. So thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Hey, thank you guys.